0: You are listening to Positive Living Vibrations with Sarah Troy. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome to Positive Living Vibrations with Sarah and her guest today, Paul Price. Paul Price. We're going to be talking about science, gravity and prophecy today. And Paul has a little a little knowledge on, on this. He is a, a leading thinker in the world's politics and science. His progressive ideas have worked into change the way that humanity looks at itself. In the field of science he's known for his groundbreaking work in the field of gravitational propulsion. This dealing with a new way of looking at gravity, defining it as an effect on the interactions with the confines of two sources of matter. No, folks, we're not going to go all science-y on you. Today is really more about kind of the prophecy and how science kind of plays with us. Um, it's an understanding that we can intertwine in our world. And we don't have to all be kind of science geeks to understand what's going on. He is the author of the prophecy, uh, Chronicles. Um, You will see there on the posting the first book, which apparently is hard to get nowadays Um, um, and apparently very expensive when you do find it. So if you've luck out, grab it because it was that popular. And he has his third book out there, as you can see, so ready for uh, buying. All his information is actually on the site on plv-radio.com under science gravity and prophecy under the positive uh, vibration shows and you can read more about him there but um, you know the other thing uh, that Paul is is he's a comedian and I think when you're looking at science and you know prophecies and gravity everything can kind of pull you down and sometimes you need a little bit of that comedic humor in order to look at life and not take it so seriously So without any further ado, let us bring on Paul and discover a little more about the balance of life and the science and gravity and prophecy and the little humor that goes along with it. Good morning, Paul.
1: Well, good morning to you. Thank you for having me on the show today. Uh,
0: My pleasure, my pleasure. So, as I said, you know, uh, science and uh, that's, you know... we're not a science show, but of course it plays so much into everything that goes on around us. So, you know, and you're an expert in your gravity field and you've got this, uh, pro- you know, prophecy going on here. How does this all intertwine and where did the comedian come out in this as well?
1: Okay, uh, should I start with the comedian or the others?: okay. Well,
0: whichever one you want to lead, <laughs> set us in our right tone, give us something jovial to uh, to set the tone.
1: Well, first of all, let me tell you I'm the, uh, I'm the third child of five children, and then I have a younger half-brother, and being the middle child, you've got to have a sense of humor. You're kind of ignored on one end, get more negative attention on the other, and then if you don't have a sense of humor, it could drive you drive you nuts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I ended up pulling pranks initially on my older sister, who is uh, or my oldest sister, Jackie, who is uh, about eighty to ninety percent deaf. And, like, one of the one of the funniest pranks I used to, you know, we are kind of psychically linked to her. And I, we, we were the two closest um, of the family members, uh, kind of the uh, outcasts, so to speak, you know. And she would start trying to talk, and then I would mimic her because I could tell what she was going to say before she said it. Now, I wouldn't say the words, but I'd be like a mirror image uh, trying to talk to her, and that would drive her nuts. And, yes, I deserved it. She uh, would hit me upside the head <laughs> or on the shoulder. And then she would come to me, and my nickname's Rick, and she goes, Ricky, Ricky, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please don't tell Daddy. And I go, I won't. And my dad get home. I go, Dad, she beat me up.
0: <laughs> Such <laughs> uh, loyalty. <and> <laughs> typical, <laughs> typical younger brother. a younger brother. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but... um being that I was kind of the you know the um, outcast in my family, and even at school I was considered quite a you know uh, outcast. There, I would kind of absorb myself in reading um, the encyclopedias, and I read the World Book Encyclopedia two to three times through from the age of eleven till the age of fourteen.
0: Wow! So if I that's like, not geeky, what is? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I also learned that I had a really good talent to be an artist as well. I would start drawing the shuttle and doing shadowing and all on it before I even took art classes in high school, but this was long before. And I even did a uh, maze, which later on somebody else got credit for, for the world's largest... Uh, hand-drawn maze and it turned out my stepmother sold it to somebody else and they claimed credit to it
0: oh how nice
1: yeah and, and uh, the person who claimed credit to it but it's in the guinness book of world's records and i'm thinking that should have been me but that's what i did on my you know you know my off time i just got bored and just started doodling and all uh well you
0: know you did it and that's the most important thing
1: well, it's okay. It's no big deal. I mean, I, I look at it this way. You know, it was... I did those things through a tough time in my life. You know, mm-hmm. I was, went through a rough patch. And, you know, it was whether or not you believe in God or not, and this is what I believe. I believe, you know, that the creator or the creative force or whatever you want term you want to use. Um, or God. You know, uh, gave me something to do that would take my mind off all the other negative stuff I was going through. Mm-hmm. And part of it had to do, uh, because I had a interest in space, I wanted to be an astronaut. Now, at the time, I didn't know that I, I had Asperger's syndrome, which uh, is a form of autism. And I have been tested uh, as an uh, autistic savant which is a quite interesting thing, you know, especially um, when my the area of savantism that I have is in particularly in calculus and mathematics and science. And I'm able also to visualize um, geometries like when I play pool, and I at one time became a very good pool player because I could see, you know, which angles that I needed to... Uh, hit the cue ball in uh, off-bank shots and all to make some pretty amazing uh, shots in pool and that's one of the things that I've had a talent on doing but speaking of the artwork again getting back to that as a child I used to take uh, cardboard boxes cut cut the backs out and I would draw scenes of the shuttle scenes of cars uh, motorcycles and all, and put them on the back of, um uh, of, uh, cardboard boxes, and that kind of got me into the mode of, uh, doing artwork, and it was my way of, you know, like I said, dealing with some of the issues I was dealing with and getting my mind off of them. Well, years later, after my, uh, step stepmom and my dad divorced, my mother got custody of us, and, um, I'm gonna fast forward, uh, into my high school high school years, you know, because we only have one hour to, <laughs> yes. to show. And um, I one of the one of my teachers in high school was a world at the time a world renowned artist by the name of Henrietta Carter, and she had um, you know she was known for her artwork and she was a excellent artist in her own you know on her own, but she decided. That she wanted to give back and become a teacher. Well, I just happened to have the unfortunate uh, circumstance of being her her student, and here's why. And it's it's actually a good story. It's not. It was negative at the time, at least in my mind. But you know what Miss Carter was trying to do was trying to pull out of me the best out of me. I mean, she believed that I could be the a, a Picasso. And I didn't really care. I was just there to get a get a grade in art class. It just came easy for me. But one time she was giving me uh, Cs, Ds, and Fs, and I looked at my and I was able to look at it and compare my artwork with other people's in the class. And I said, Miss Carter, why are you giving me a D and F when I know my work's better than everybody else's in here? She looked at me and made a really profound statement. She goes, Paul these other people, yeah, your art works better than theirs, but these other people are giving 70 to 100% effort in uh, in what they're doing, but you're only giving 10%. Therefore, if you're going to earn the grade that you make, you know, she goes, and I want you to try to uh, to push out better, she goes, you're lazy. And at first when I heard that, I am going, I'm not being lazy, it's just but what she was trying to do was have a, an effect to get me to to pull out the uh, best work that I could ever do because she believed in my abilities. Mm-hmm. She knew I had the talent. And at the time, I didn't care. At the time, I'm like going, <laughs> well, you know, it, it was easy for me. And, I, you know, and with other art t- teachers I had, she finally passed me with C+. Which I guess is a good thing, but I mean, for me, it was more like you know, it's kind of an insult. Yeah. But you know, at the time,
0: you didn't get the psychology behind what she was doing at the time.
1: No, I didn't. And uh, but every time, and with other instructors I had, they kept giving me A's and B's because you know they they saw that I had you know talent, but you know every time I would run into. Miss Carter. After that, and she taught several years after at Pasadena High School in Pasadena, Texas. She would come up. She goes, "Paul, I hope you're not being lazy anymore." (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Miss Carter, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that's the type of believe it or not, the type of even though it may sound negative, it's actually positive reinforcement. Yeah. She wanted me to know that she believed in me, but she wasn't she wanted me to believe in myself
0: yeah so she was reflecting the grade as according to what she knew your abilities were and not comparing oh. your abilities with everyone else
1: yeah like i said she thought i she even stated she goes you could become a very great artist but she goes you're not putting enough effort into it she goes it does come easy for you but you know and it was something she made a point about in my life. She was trying to tell me that you need to put effort behind what you do. You have natural talent.
0: Mm-hmm. So that
1: that can only carry you so far. Well, um, years passed. Um, I found out I had epilepsy, which when I did research on Asperger's syndrome later, um, a lot of people with Asperger's syndrome do have epilepsy, the biggest majority of them. The same particular thing, the thing, the same particular uh, issue that comes from uh, as or that causes Asperger's syndrome also um, causes the condition that can lead to epilepsy. And when I found that out years later, I didn't find out that I had Asperger's syndrome until I was well into my adult years, which um, explained a whole lot as to what. You know, was really happening. You know, you know, with me from the time when I was being ostracized by my family and by my schoolmates to you know having a hard time being able to you know stay employed because people didn't understand me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was a hard pill to swallow. But one of the ways I dealt with that was that I went into my research mode and um, started researching on and gravitational fields. And what led to my research into what they, what is called anti-gravity, but it's not really anti-gravity, it's counter-gravitational effect. That would be a more proper term to use than anti-gravity, because gravity is not... you're not nullifying gravity. You're manipulating it. So you're, uh, anti-gravity is a misnomer. Um, but it led to my theories, and it led to me uh, getting a um, um, a doctorate bestowed upon me by one of the b- uh, biggest uh, universities in the world dealing with engineer in- engineering physics from India. And they bestowed it on me because they saw what i they saw the value in the uh, work I was doing in the uh, field of gravitational physics. Excellent. And I didn't initially get into uh, any gravity research honestly to do to do that. I was working at NASA and of in of all jobs uh, as a pot washer in the cafeteria being trained as a cafeteria manager. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, think about the story of Homer Hickam's uh, October Sky, where he talked about his life and and I think it was Kentucky,
0: in the Mm -hmm. coal mines
1: of Kentucky. And how he, you know, as a child, you know, the child of a coal miner, um, taught himself, you know, the physics of rocket propulsion. Yes. And I had a chance to actually shake the hand of Homer Hickam one time. I wrote him one time and told him about my story. And at the time in uh, San Antonio, I was working um, um, as a, you know, uh, as a lawn care guy. <laughs> I worked for a lawn care company. Mm-hmm. And um, he came up to there and wanted to meet me. And here I am in the back of this particular uh, truck and, or this uh, trailer pushing down branches. And I recognized the guy, and he goes, Hello, are you Paul? And I go, Hello, I am. He noticed I was busy, uh, so he couldn't really talk, but I shook his hand. And Gosh,
0: I would have stopped. <laughs> Believe me, I would have stopped. <laughs> well, I was
1: trying to earn a living. He understood that. And um, he talked to my boss, and my boss talked to him. My boss was a uh, college professor. and um, But the reason why I kind of fast-forwarded that, to that point was that Homer um, Hickam, his story was, is quite similar to mine in a lot of aspects. And I didn't get some of the uh, opportunities he had. But during my, my visits and travels, I've been able to meet people like Warren Buffett in a in what I call a chance meeting even though I don't believe anything when it comes to those people are no, no. done by chance.
0: It's just divine, yeah.
1: Yeah, and... Uh, struck up a good friendship uh, with a man back in 1998 and i was later invited to bilderberg to a bilderberg meeting later that year um but i couldn't go because of financial reasons but i did get the minutes and all sent to me and what they had discussed and i've met other people since then um you know other people who were you know You know, kind of like in the situation that Forrest Gump in that story went through, um, even though I'm not as, you know, (laughs) unintelligent as Mr. Gump. But um, the thing is, I've met some real famous people. Like, you know, I knew Johnny Mayer before he became John Mayer. I worked one time at a restaurant with a young actress at that time who who later won two, or actually three, Academy Awards uh Renee Zellwinger.
0: Mhm.
1: And, you know, I've known quite a few people, you know, in my in my past that were either famous politically or not, you know. So I've had those opportunities. Even one time, uh Scott Staff, uh, the former lead singer for the group, um oh gosh, what's the name of that group again, that rock group, um It'll come to me, but people who know about that guy will know who I'm talking about. Right. Um, And I was in a depressed mode one time, and his son, who was about three years old, um, came up when I was on the bus and tapped me on the shoulder and was smiling and gave me a better outlook on life.
0: Mm hmm.
1: And. I, these are things that happen, you know, that can can kind of, you know, have a either a positive or negative effect in your life. And let me get to the comedian part. I was going, you know, I had always wanted to do stand-up comedy. I didn't think I would do good at it. But there was a chance for me to do the, to take the comedy gym course when I was in San Antonio. So I went ahead and did that. And one of the greatest comedians that I had ever had the... Uh, chance of knowing was Sam Cox. Now, he's known as being a writer for The day, or for Late Night with David Letterman and for The uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. And he also was a stand-up comedian in his own right. But he kind of did semi-retirement from that and uh, started teaching uh, English at the University at UT Austin. But then he would teach people how to do stand-up comedy. So I took his... Um, I took his course, and I learned the, uh, how to do, take the notes and how to practice for a session, and to do all the other stuff that um, a person needed to do to be uh, a stand-up com- comic. And then I did my uh, my set one night at the River Center Comedy Club in in San Antonio. Now, let's just put it this way: I, you know, I hate to say it, but all comedians will tell you one thing. We all have one model. We are equal opportunity offenders. Mm-hmm. We are, we aren't prejudiced, but we believe that we offend people equally. And
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: and I was seeing some really good singers. You know, I, I worked as a telemarketer at one time, and one of the things I noticed observationally, and this is how you get good good humor is that you look at life experiences, and then you look at what you've been through, and then you apply it to your comedy. Well, what happened with um, um, one of my jokes was that I, I did a joke about telemarketing. And I worked as a telemarketer for a long period of time, so I knew what I was talking about. You get people on the line who are coming in from, uh, into this country, they're just learning how to speak English. And they have a hard time being able to relate to what you're saying, and they're trying to tell you, you know, they're trying to you know, tell you they don't want it, but they have a hard time doing it. So this, uh, the, um part of the sad uh, you know, joke I, that I told was, "You know, you get this person, this woman from another country just coming in to our country, doesn't know how to speak English that well, but you're calling her and saying, "Hello, I've got this great." Uh, this great long-distance plan for you I'd like to sell to you just no, no 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 sir I'm not interesting hold on ma'am you say you're not interesting who told you that you sound very interesting to me you're not understanding me sir. So I said I'm not interesting so what are you saying you're not interesting do you have really low self-esteem man come on hey you sound like a great person to me when you feel this way. No, sir, I said I'm not into And I said, Okay, okay. I get it. I get it. I understand where you're coming coming from. But if you're ever in my neck of the woods, let me give you the number of a good therapist to help you with your insecurity issues. And I know uh that may not go for too well right now, but it was one of the jokes that I said that people could relate to there mm-hmm. in yes. the world. And um you know, like I said, um, I talked about, you know, my family, which is another thing that, you know, they tell you to go ahead and do when you are doing stand-up comedy. And uh, I'll just use one joke that I don't think is quite as offensive as the other ones I did, but it dealt with my youngest half-brother. I said he was the only child, then he uh, he was the lone child, then he became the lost child. So I bought him a mirror for Christmas one year, so he could find himself.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Um uh, I, I was used to say actually if you have an argument take it up with your mirror.
1: <laughs> well, the uh, <laughs> the thing about it is, you know, having uh you know, you know, you know, having a talent for comedy does help you look at life in a more constructive way, believe it or
0: not. Oh, absolutely. You don't take life so seriously. And, you know, and actually you, you ask Oscar, you know, is is a gift in many, many ways. Um, you know, my co-pilot here is, um has uh, OCD. And he was blessed, fortunately, with very hippie parents that decided to discover what OCD is. And they changed it to OCB. It's, it's a behavior, not a disorder. And uh, came to understand what it was. And he went on to run multi-million dollar companies and, and has an incredible mind. And, um, you know, is an inventor and will completely understand your math and science and everything else because of the, like, as you said, you saw kind of patterns and you can make sense out of it. And he's the same. And I think if you look at the history of the greats, uh, the people that have really made an enormous difference scientifically in the world, generally there is something underlaying there that they have that society places a stigma on or places a label on but in actual fact is actually a gift of perception that they have that sees things differently to us and that's why they can be such creators
1: well and, and that's the way i look at it let me tell you um let me go back to my young childhood here and i'll uh, give you a story um in first grade i was uh, going to school in missoula montana and this was over 40 years ago, so this was actually about 38, 39 years ago. Let's uh, do the correct math here. It was around 73, 1973. And I could do the mathematics and all the other stuff, but I got bored with school. I kept thinking, I know how to do this. I, know I, I knew how to, how to write. I knew how to you know, do my spelling and all, and I knew the simple math. But here I am looking out the window. And I couldn't focus on my classwork. I was just... It bored me. There's nothing exciting about it. So they were worried that there was something wrong with me instead of thinking at the time... Now, you got to remember, this was the early 70s. They don't know as much as they do now about how to deal with kids like me. Or like I was. And they sent me to a... Um, um, a research facility that was run by the uni- University of Missoula, or Montana in Missoula, but it was being funded in part by the CIA. And I didn't find out until later that part of the reason for that funding was that they were looking for psychic savants. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this uh, played in well with the work they were doing in re- remote viewing, and I think you know what that is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe you'd like to just give a
0: little understanding for our audience.
1: Well, the audience, uh, it was called Pro- uh, Project Stargate. What they did is, uh, was that they used a form of uh, astral projection, but it was called controlled astral projection or remote viewing, to, uh, to view targets in foreign countries by projecting themselves or their, their astral self into another country, uh, and then they were able to gain data from it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and um, they can teach people how to do that, but there are certain people such as myself that have the natural ability that don't have to be taught. And here's where I came from, or here's what happened to me. They did a series of psychic tests on me. You know those uh, card tests where they show you the squiggly line, the pyramid. And the amazing thing is, uh, with uh, the odds of, um, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, Brain going blank here. Uh, (laughs) uh, Statistical odds state that um, you're going to make one or two randomly by accident. It's when you either miss them all or you make them all that that shows an anomaly.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I ended up missing... All the, uh, every one of them, but when they went back and looked at it, I was five ahead in the sequence. Mm. In other words, I was.
0: projecting forward. Yeah.
1: I was remotely viewing five ahead and I was seeing future events, Mm -hmm. which showed them I had a very strong um, uh, precognitive capability. Well, it turns out later that my father, and I don't know if your listeners know what the Montauk Project is.
0: Just give them a little synopsis of it.
1: Well, let's go back to 1943 and in Philadelphia shipyards, okay? And the reason why I go back that far is because that was the initial beginning of the uh, project. Originally, it was called Project Rainbow. A ship called the USS Eldridge was... uh, Let's just say it was teleported from one dock to another one in Virginia, in Norfolk. And um, when it came back, reported anomalies were that they, um, um, members of the crew were embedded in the uh, ship's hull. And the
0: Philadelphia Project.
1: The Philadelphia Project, yeah. Right. Well, the Navy shut that down for a while, but then the Navy brought it up brought it back up in the mid to late 50s under what they called the Montauk Project. It was after the um, crash in Roswell of a UFO. My father was a witness to that when he was eight years old. But in 1959, reportedly they had gotten one of the chairs from the Roswell uh, uh, crash, modified it, and they were able to put psychics in there and they could actually manipulate uh, the time stream with their minds. And they allow people to travel back and forth through time and to travel long distances through the time space continuum. Where I come in is that when they, after they tested me when I was six years old and found out I had a strong precognitive ability, they paid my father to take me up to Montauk. They put me in a Faraday cage for about eight hours. And it was made of wood and chicken wire. I remember that quite well. Mm -hmm. I remember trying to sleep during that, and I couldn't sleep because my back was starting to hurt because of the... uh, And they had me stripped down to my underwear. And my father finally told them, get him out of there now. And they said, no, the experiment's not done yet. And he goes, "Get get him the F out of there now, or I'll or i will kill all of, all of you and he said that he was afraid of what might happen to you know what was happening to me right they, well i mean a
0: six-year-old this would be child abuse you know it is child abuse
1: well and um but the thing is though afterwards my father had my uh brothers and sisters uh we would run across the country he blamed my mother for it when they got a divorce but I started to realize that it may not have been my mother's issue. It may have been the fact that um, my um, father um, was afraid of what was going to happen to me. He knew that there were government people watching us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what he told my sisters and brothers, and I remember this, he goes, you make sure Rick gets here. If anyone tries to stop and pick him up, you run with him, grab him and run. And I had all but forgotten about the Montauk Project until I saw some video and read, read a book I'd bought um, dealing with the Montauk Project, saw all the pictures, and it, bl- it brought back a flood of memories to my mind, because I remembered being there with my dad. And I asked him later, I said, Dad, was, um, were we in Montauk, in Montauk, New York? And he goes, Rick, you don't remember? He goes, Yes, we went on a trip there. You don't remember? And I went, Well, I do now. I remember seeing the images. And what I think happened is that they probably blocked my memory somehow. But then after I saw the pictures and all, the, those memories came back to the forefront of my mind. Well, and how this gets to my scientific work, uh, and, you know, I know that we have a well, I don't know how many minutes left on the show. Um, let me get. We're there. doing fine here. I am a autistic savant. I'm able to, and i may, It was weird when I was younger. I could, uh, It was. It wasn't that I couldn't do simple math. I was just bored with it, and I wouldn't do the work because I got bored with it and it didn't challenge me.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: um, but I learned that I had that aptitude to be able to learn how to do calculus. No, no one had to teach me. And to come up with um, sci- scientific formulas for, um, uh, formulations for physics and all, it came pretty easy for me. And my research into anti-gravity started, believe it or not, or counter-gravity effects started, believe it or not, when I worked for NASA back in 1990. Now, I was working there, and I had always wanted to work there. See, back in 1986, when the Challenger exploded, a concept, another concept of mine that I never got credit for, but I'm glad it, glad it worked, was a redesign for the shuttle solid rocket uh, hinge, hinge joints. And they actually used uh, almost identical design to what I had you know, told them about. Told a representative of that of NASA about um, dealing with, uh, and I kept thinking about mason jars. At the time, my grandmother used to used to make uh, jams and preserves, mm-hmm. and they kept saying that it was the O-ring seal that uh, failed, which caused the explosion. And I kept thinking, what if you could design something that worked like a mason jar? to where it would twist and then seal that and make it a really tight seal. So I came up with a clip system design that I I ended up giving to a NASA representative that I helped him uh, keep him from getting fired because one of the mock-ups, uh, one of the uh, crews that was doing uh, maintenance on the mock-up had left the uh, door open and people were going in and out and then I told him about it and he goes, well, you need it. I first had told him about the idea and he goes, well, you need to contact so-and-so. And I said, by the way, sir, you know that, that people are going in and out of that mock-up, don't you? He goes, you're lying to me. He go, no, sir, I'm not. Go check it out. And he went and ran back, and he goes, thank you, man. You saved my job. And I go, well, will you tell one of the engineers about what I did? And he goes, yeah, what, what's your name? And I go, it's Paul Richard Price. And he goes, okay, Paul, I'll make sure that they get this. And I go, thank you. And then I find out later... NASA did try to call me to think about it, but later on, uh, somebody else got credit for it, but it was my design. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) So it's not been the first time I've had people steal ideas from me, but it's okay. I mean, I I didn't do it for money. I didn't do it for fame. I did it mainly to try to find a way to save people's lives. And that's all I cared about because I wanted to be an astronaut and watching my uh, heroes die the way they did and me angry and hurt. So I thought... God gave me this gift, why not use it? Mm -hmm. And then months, um, years later, I went to work for NASA in the cafeteria, and I kept having this idea for a propellantless propulsion system, which I called the Electromagnetic Pulse Reaction Engine. And I ended up drawing it out, I ended up thinking, how is this going to work? And the process (laughs) on developing ideas is that first... Uh, at least with people like myself, is that we can visualize an idea in its totality. And we yes. can run mental simulations doing it, and we can tell how the idea works. Well, and I did that, and here I am working in the ca- in the cafeteria washing pots, and, you know, they were training me to be a, an assistant manager of the uh, secondary um, cafeteria there, and even had me go and work over there, to prepare me to be transferred. Well, I ended up, I had to go in for my yearly physical, and this is strange, I've been to Building 8, I don't know how many times where the clinic, clinic is, but for that reason, that day, I had a mental block, and I don't believe that it was something I did, I believe it was something that, they used a certain type of technology, uh, infrasound technology, I found out later, to kind of make me a little dazed and confused a bit, you know, because I couldn't find out where I was going. I said, I don't know where it's at, but I can't remember where where to go. And I kept going to Mission Control and asking people, do you know how to get to the, to the clinic? And then they would send me all the way on the other side. Then I'd ask another person. Then they'd send me on the other side. and It was a wild, wild goose chase. Well, eventually, I ran into a guy who claimed that he was an engineer working for a subcontractor. I found out later he actually worked for the NASA uh, Investigator General's office. His name was John Evans. And I said, well, can you take me to the clinic? And he goes, sure, I can. And I said, you're an engineer. He worked on life support, he said. And I said, you're an engineer. Do you think this would work? And I go, and he asked me, "What it? what is it? And I go, an electromagnetic pulse reaction engine. And he goes, keep it down. We don't want everybody hearing this. And I go, okay. He asked me, what do you, wo- show me what you're working on. And I drew him a rudimentary drawing on a nap. And then, um, about 10 weeks or about five weeks later, I was terminated. And the excuse was for breaking 10 dishes and for being insubordinate. And I w- was never insubordinate, but I did break 10 dishes because I was the only one manning the, uh, conveyor belt uh, dishwasher at the time and I had to stack everything because my partner was gone the guy I was working with but it turns out later I learned from a friend of mine who worked NASA security, I'm not going to mention his name right now because he's a captain right now at, at, with NASA security and I don't want him, his job to be jeopardized but I had stumbled on, stumbled across a classified project he stated that the Air Force and NASA were working on, and my design was almost identical to what um, NASA and the Air Force were working on uh, on that classified project. They thought that I had either accessed the top secret computer system, uh, you know, at, at the Johnson Space Center, or that I had somehow, and this was the first time I had ever heard this term used, I had somehow remote-viewed the information or heard it from um, sources that were working uh, at NASA in the cafeteria when they ate lunch.
0: Right. Because you couldn't possibly come up with it on your own.
1: Yeah, that's what they were trying to claim. Mm -hmm. And uh, afterwards, um, even if... I'm not going to mention the guy's name here. I've mentioned his name before on my own show, and it's gotten me um, attacked, you know, um, for it. But a former, uh, now retired intelligence officer, who's known for his work in Satanism and all, was sent to find out what I knew. And by uh, former President George Herbert Walker Bush, had given me a specific order, and he told me about it. To find out who I was talking to, how I knew what I knew, and to take out executive action on me. Now, I don't know if your listeners know what that term means.
0: Probably termination.
1: It was termination, Mm -hmm. yes. And he he booked him. He said, I'm not going to do this. This guy is a genius. You need to put him to work for one of your projects. He's a patriot. He doesn't want to, you know, he's not trying to harm anyone. And he found this out on his own. And he and and he t- and he told me I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to do what they asked me to do. And then I asked him one thing in particular. He went by the, by the name of Daniel Moore. Uh, that was code name. It wasn't his real name. And uh, I said, "Well, Daniel, couldn't this get you killed?" And he goes, "Not really." And I go, "Why not?" He goes, "I know where the bodies are buried." <laughs> and he goes, "And I buried a few of them myself for them." Right. And he goes. They're not going to touch me. And he goes and, don't, and he even he had a military issue Beretta handgun, fully automatic 40, forty-five caliber. And one night he left and he goes, "If your brother or I comes to the door, and my brother was staying with me at the time, and you have a bad feeling about this." Uh, uh, he goes, uh, "Empty the clip on this gun." He goes, "I know you know how to use it." And he was serious because he was afraid that people, uh, if he didn't do the contract, somebody else would. Mm -hmm. And because of him, I, you know, it saved my life, but it led me eventually after I found out that I got terminated and what, you know, what, and I was being watched by government people. And I mean, I'm not going to get into that. I mean, there's some funny stories to where I confronted one of them and he and I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, don't watch me. Watch yourself. And he flipped the bird at me. he was driving by. And I looked at him and I said, hey, guys, have a good day. And waved at him. Um, but, you know, they were watching me quite, quite a bit after that. Uh, there's issues with black helicopters. And I know people when people talk about that, people have a hard time believing that those things do occur. Oh, of course they do. But,
0: I mean, where do you think all they, the movies get all their information from? You know? I mean, it's no, been no. made so spectacular, but of course this is always in you know, the fundamental truth of what goes on.
1: Well, I mean, when I was in San Antonio, for example, I had a former Navy SEAL that worked as my protector. And he wanted to know where I was going because he was afraid somebody might hurt me. Well, then after that, Military Apache helicopters that were uh, kind of gray black would kind of would kind of fly over and uh, make sure I got where I was going safely. And it got to a point where uh, the pilots and I, we would I look up at them, wave at them, they'd wave back and smile at me, and I go, "Have a good
0: day."
1: <laughs> I mean, and it was really cool during that time, you know. I mean, and the la- one of the last times that I had, you know, some direct contact with the military. This is when I lived in Roswell, New Mexico, back about seven years ago. And these guys checking on me, they would uh, take the military helicopter, buzz the apartment, the roof of the apartment where I was at, and I could feel the uh, the backwash from the rotors, something there, in the, and I said, okay, guys, I'm okay. I knew that they had uh, infrared technology where they could check on me. Mm-hmm. And I waved at him and said, I'm okay, okay, you can go now. <laughs> and then one of the other times is when I had gotten up earlier than what, what I normally did. Walked down to the apartment complex office. And me and one of the uh, one of the maintenance personnel uh, looked up and I said, Steve, look up there. And he goes, that's a military helicopter. And he goes, yeah, it is. It's right above my roof. And he goes, Yeah. I go, yeah, I just wanted to make sure sure that you saw it. And he goes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's interesting. What what what, well, what is what are
0: what are you doing now? What is your work now?
1: Oh yeah, I guess we're it's coming uh, to the last ten minutes here. So. <laughs> not yet, no,
0: not quite yet. But just you know, what is uh, you know what is I'm what is the now tele- for you?
1: I'm writing a teleplay based on my uh, redemption book. I'm hopefully going to sell that teleplay pretty soon. Um, about two years ago, I presented a paper on gravity as a gravity and a fluid membrane, a new propulsion methodology that I presented at the Space Technology Applications International Forum Co- Two Conference in Albuquerque, part of me in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and. uh, It was sponsored by the University of New Mexico and um, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Well, and I wanted to get some time to get into the point about, uh, you know, about prophecy, gravity, and philosophy. And I think we can do that in the last few minutes. Mm -hmm. In the books that I've written in the Prophecy Chronicles trilogy, it deals with an upcoming dictatorial world ruler who didn't start off being uh, dictatorial. He starts off being the nicest guy in, in the whole world. However, because of a secret society's assassination attempt, he gets entwelled by a demonic spirit, which turns him into the epitome of evil. And. Technology and it plays a really big part of my books, dealing with, like in the first book, The Chosen One dealt with uh, bioweapons technology. The second one, Annie Song, dealt with uh, Nazi technology from World War II, being used to um, abduct children for genetic experiments and taken to a uh, base on the far side of the moon. And the third and final book in the uh, trilogy... Uh, dealt with uh, using nanotechnology as a way to reformat the human brain and create a hive a hive mind brain so to speak where one person could control the many through technology and these are the basic thrust in all three of the uh, books in the series and there are some subplots there but we don't have time to get into all that
0: people will just have um, to buy the book
1: yeah, I buy the book and help support the work I'm doing, people. <laughs> yes. But um, in it, you know, you, we talk about gravitational control, and, you know, I talk about that in the second book, um, Annie's Song, which deals with um, Nazi technology. Now, the Nazis did develop anti or counter gravitational technology during World War II, but were not able to perfect it because of the fact that they were running low on. On funding, and the third Reich was about to fall in anyway uh, because of the uh, of the battles uh, with the Russians and with the uh, Allies in World War II, and they had all but basically lost the wars of their advanced technologies. Soon after that, were transferred to the United States and to Russia, and some to England. A lot of the uh, counter-gravitational or electrogravitic systems were transferred to England and Canada. Well, um, but the biggest thrust in, in this is looking at even Bible or secular prophecy. In it, you know, you might read Revelation, the book of Revelation, talking about the number of the beast, and that if anyone takes that number, they can either buy or don't take that number, they can either buy nor sell. But if they do take that number, they're lost forever. I explain that in the third book very well because of a program done by IBM called the Hive Mind Project where they want to implant a chip in people that can release nanites or uh, microscopic robots into the bloodstream that can, uh, uh, that can bridge the, broad, the uh, blood-brain barrier. Then, and they've already mapped the human mind in, in classified projects enough to where they can actually, um, they know exactly how the mind works. And they can use technology then to rewire or, or reformat the human mind. And that's the thrust of my book and where technology does come in. Because technology is being used to help further promote prophetic writings whether it be in the bible or others there are secret societies out there who are who are hell-bent and they believe that through through uh, through order comes through chaos
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one of the other parts of my book is dealing with these secret societies is that they want to bring armageddon to the earth because they want the earth to be destroyed, because they believe when the new earth and new heaven comes into power, they will be the masters of that new earth.
0: Oh, how many through the times and through the ages has there been that kind of thinking?
1: Yeah, and we're talking about the fact now that one of the reasons why I wrote the books the way I did was to help educate people, to give them a warning and that there is still an opportunity at this point to change what you know the path that people are going on and that's my ultimate goal and thrust in what i do whether it be my talk show the books i've written or anything else i've done in my life is that i want to empower people to do better
0: well you know for a start people can kind of get out of their head and stop relying just on that information And start being more in tuned with the soul, their gut instincts, the heart and their spirit. Because that's where your God divine, whatever you believe in, comes through. And that's where we actually receive the divine knowledge of knowing what to do. Our mind then knows what actually to do with that knowledge, how to implement that knowledge. And you know, the spirit gets into it. But, you know, if we're just always harvesting or thinking purely of the brain and the mind and not encompassing you know, the spirit, the heart, and the soul, we are completely cutting ourselves off and uh, imprisonating ourselves in many, many ways.
1: Well, and I agree with you on that, but the thing is, we have a, the elite, uh, for the most part, and I know some of them personally, I've met quite a few, have, I hate to use the term, but it's the most correct term in psychology to, to use with these individuals, they're sociopaths. Mm-hmm they have disconnected themselves from their spirit.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And they're thinking mainly on a basal logic point. It gets to a point where they even believe that the only way to deal with depopulate, or the only way to deal with overpopulation is to murder people.
0: GMO, yes.
1: Not only GMO, we're talking also biological weapons research. We're talking one of the main instigators for war in the modern era, is to depopulate is to find ways to depopulate the world in one mass con- concentration, and they're wanting to get the world down to a what they call a sustainable sustainable level. And what we need to do is that you know mankind they have devalued humanity. Oh yeah. And my ultimate goal is to show the value of every human being on this earth, whether they be poor, rich, white, black, whether they be Hindu, Christian, Muslim, everybody on this earth has value, they wouldn't be here, the Creator would not have put us here if we were not valued.
0: Well, what people have to understand is that value comes with self first. Uh, you don't look to other people to value you, to value yourself, you have to find that inner value, that inner love, so that you can find that divine purpose. Uh, of what you're meant to be doing here but it has to come from you first you have to be willing to do the work to discover who you are why you are, what you're doing here and that you're part of the unity for community you're part of that village and take responsibility for your own actions
1: no and I agree with that but you know one of the things though they've done is that they've dumbed down oh yes society to a point where now the people sheeple don't, the sheeple don't think for themselves no. right? And what I'm trying to do with everything I do is to empower people, to start making good decisions instead of, you know, believing, you know, and, and I've been to churches before where they say, well, this is supposed to come, come about, so why fight it? And I keep thinking, hold it here. Not even our Creator wants us to, you know, to bow down to, you know, to a negative power. We have to be empowered to go And, yes, make the choices that we need to make. But also, and this this is the big thing, though, too, is to fight for our very right of existence. Because every one of us has the right to live on this planet. We have, and I'm going to use the term here, it's the best thing I could think of uh, off the cuff here, we all have God-given inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness not only here in America and in Canada, but worldwide. And the thing is, we have a small elite that are trying to take full control because they think they know better. But what they don't understand is that all of us are are, are intricate, uh, intric- uh, intric- I can't think of the word right <laughs> We're all integrated yes. into one, into humanity, and we must... Uh, look at it from that point, we must not look down on people because they're poor, because they may have mental issues, or because they may not be the same race or religion we
0: are. Yeah, well that's why I say it starts with us. Um, You know, take care of, quote, your own house. Um, You know, stop putting the blame on everything else, stop empowering the people that are doing this to you. And every time you feed the conspiracy, you're feeding the fear, you're giving them the power, you're giving them that vibration, that energy to grow with. If you take it back, it's you put that energy and that empowerment upon you, upon your neighbor, upon your community. And then you actually do not need those people and they become depowered. It's only because we give them the power I can't blanche because we refuse to take responsibility for ourselves. On that note, no. my darling, you're going to have to tell everybody how they can get hold of you, your site and information, your books, etc., because we're coming down to that time.
1: Okay, uh, you can find my, you can find my, uh, one of my webpages, uh or about.me, forward slash Price Paul. You can go to uh, Blog Talk Radio and go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the Rick Factor Talk Show. Uh, you can find me at, on lulu.com, which is one of my publishers of the hardcover hard edition of my book. lulu.com forward slash Paul Pryster, That's P A U L P R I C E S T E R. All one word. And you can go to Amazon.com and uh, enter in redemption, and you can pull up my book, Redemption, and Create Space is also publishing it there. And uh, let's see here. My, You can contact me if you want to email me at paulprice Price, one word, paulprice one nine six eight at Hushmail.com. That's H U S H M A I L.com
0: excellent okay, so- and you'll find all that information um, on us posting for this show on plv-radio.com under the positive living vibrations and you if you've missed the show folks don't worry or you want to somebody else to hear this um it will be on the cloud so you'll be able to find it under past shows under positive living vibrations uh under the plv com, and you'll be able to catch up and forward the show to other people to listen to and see what they can do to stop empowering the people that want to get rid of this. So thank you so much for being on the air with me and sharing your story. Uh, Keep your innovation going. It is a gift that was given to you. And, uh, you know, just keep out there and helping people get educated as to what they can do so they don't have to give up their own power. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you as well. Till
0: the next time, folks. Thank you for tuning in to PLV Radio. We hope that our programming has inspired you. Please feel free to visit the website to find past shows and schedules. Find your favorite hosts, leave comments about your experience, and share ideas for future shows. Don't forget to visit us on your favorite social media websites, which you will find links to at plv radio.com. Listen with your friends and share the inspiration.